Hey, hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome, welcome to Unraveling the Words of Yahweh. My name is Kevin Eitner. So glad to have you tuning in this morning. And another beautiful, glorious morning here, right here on the Del Mara Peninsula. Yeah. Oh, mercy sakes. Hey, we've been... Um, we started this study off, and I, I think I've already got like 30 lessons in on this rapture doctrine. And it's not so much that I disagree with a rapture, but where what my view is, is a pre-tribulation rapture. There's, unfortunately, there's no documentation uh, on a, a pre-trib. Uh, like I said in various studies, we we went in First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians. Uh, I went into First Corinthians. Uh, we touched what uh, Yahweh had to say there in Ezekiel thirteen, and now we're in this Matthew twenty four, and we're literally hearing the uh, uh, the voice of Yeshua Messiah telling his disciples uh, what to expect, and and you remember. Just in case there's any new listeners out there this morning, we began this chapter 24. Now, what happened in chapter 23 was the Messiah was in the temple and he scorned, scolded uh, those, the religious community. Matter of fact, you can read in numerous scriptures where it says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. This is what he's calling the religious community because they're, they're teaching these false doctrines. So then we come into this chapter 24, and he talks about these stones. Or not one stone's going to be here. They're all going to be overthrown. And then there in verse 3, his disciples ask him three questions. Not one question, but three separate questions. Tell us, when shall these things be? When, when, when are these, uh, the temple and the stones going to be thrown down? Uh, what shall be the signs of thy coming? Number two. And then number three, and of the end of the world. You know, you, you hear me talk about... Uh, how this uh, uh, all came about, this rapture doctrine. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say Margaret McDonald, and I'm, I'm not disputing them, Margaret McDonald. I, I go back into those three Jesuits that, you know, came, came about with their doctrine because they had to come up with a solution against the, the Reformation period. And then, of course, the, 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 uh, the great heretic himself, John Darby, uh, Eddie Irving. And then it got over to uh, Cyrus Schofield. And we'll talk about Cyrus later on. Cyrus Schofield. And then the connection with Samuel Untermeyer. Uh, that, this is how all this rapture dispensationalism. But I find it interesting that in John Darby, when you, when you read Darby's commentary... And he talks about when the Messiah said, well, let me, let me read part. I'm just going to read in part what this John Darby saying. He said, the Lord's discord is divided into three parts. The general condition of the disciples and of the time, during the time of the testimony of the end, or uh, verse 14. 
Uh, number two, the period marked out by the fact that the abomination of desolation stands in the holy place. And then point number three, the Lord's coming and the gathering together of the elect in Israel. And when you scroll on down and you continue reading here, what John Darby's saying here about the end of the world pertains to Israel, not the whole world, but to Israel. Uh, he says here, uh, let's see here, uh, where are that which the Lord said is not absolutely limited to the testimony in Canaan, but as it is from thence, the testimony goes forth. It is all connected with the land as the center of God's ways. But in addition to this, the gospel, gospel of the kingdom should be preached into all the world for witness unto all nations. And then should the end come, the end of this age. Now, although heaven is the source of authority when the kingdom shall be established, Canaan and Jerusalem are its earthly center. So that the idea of the kingdom, while extending throughout the world, turns our thoughts to the land of Israel. It is this gospel of the kingdom which here is spoken of. It's not the proclamation of the union of the church with Christ, nor redemption in its fullness, as preached and taught by the apostles after the ascension. But the kingdom which was to be established on the earth, as John the Baptist, the Lord himself, had proclaimed. The establishment of the universal authority of the ascended Christ should be preached into all the world to test their obedience and to furnish those who had ears to hear with the object of faith. So basically what he's saying here is, is that everything is focused in Israel. This, this it, Nothing's going to happen. The saints are going to be raptured out in the land of Israel. This is basically what John Darby's proclamation, and and it, and it ran away, and it just it just escalated. It got so far fetched, and it, it's it's sad. Uh, before I get into this Matthew twenty four verse fifteen, I want to share it with you. I, I'm not going to mention the minister's name, but but he's got a thing here titled "The Vision of Rapture: How Rapture Will Be." He writes here, this is a vision of the rapture by Jesus Christ to me in 2011. Now listen to what this guy says here. I was placed on a very high plain ground on top of a very high mountain. I heard a voice telling me to look up into the clouds. I could not see the source of the voice. I looked up. The door of heaven opened. I saw two angels stand on the sides of the door. The Son of Man, Jesus, was about to make his descent into the clouds. Power and great glory was with him, great in a way I cannot explain to satisfactory, because there are no words to fully describe. Jesus descended as I watched, being followed by many angels closely behind. His garments were white than anything I can think of. Even snow was not as white as what I saw. Light was coming out of him, and his garments were brightly glowing that my eyes could not see his face, hands, or feet, the same way I saw him in my testimony. A bright cloud was with him, behind him, and on his sides. His glory and power settled on the clouds, not in far clouds, but in near clouds we can see. Clouds were respecting and honoring him to the point that they covered the earth entirely, making it dull beneath them. Neither the moon nor the stars or the sun gave their light. They were all hidden from man on earth by a bright, dense, thick clouds, 
white clouds and no man could could see them but I could the light which was shining on the earth came from Jesus Christ through the clouds in the earth was illuminated but people did not see any difference in the illumination but I could I was told to look back to the earth to the space between the clouds and the earth a great multitude of the chosen was coming out of the earth to space tears flowed as I watched this happening it's unimaginable unbelievable before even they could reach the space they were all changed transformed within a twinkling of an eye so fast that I could not realize how it happened to complete cleanliness and whiteness and the likeness of Jesus Christ every person was dressed with exact white garments like Jesus this great multitude of chosen had great joy and happiness as they entered the space I have never ever and I repeat, never ever in my life seen people so happy, joyful, together without discriminating who, the, who is this or who is that. They were all like one big family. I saw this multitude of the elect unite with Jesus Christ and the angels in the clouds. And I turned to be like them and taken to stand in the clouds. I was placed in a place where I could clearly watch them. All angels took a stand around them in a circle with Jesus Christ at the front. The great multitude being led by Jesus ascended up, up, up in the skies as I watched. The heaven door was open with two angels at the doorsteps. The great multitude ascended, and I saw them enter the kingdom of heaven through the heaven open door, being honored by two angels at the doorsteps. I cried tears of joy. I was told to write all what I saw with a paper and a pen. I wrote everything I saw. Then I was told to write what I was being told by the Spirit. And this is what the Spirit was telling me. What I saw is coming to happen soon and very soon. Now keep in mind, this was written in 2011. Some people living in this generation are not going to die. Saints should not be afraid and concentrate, concentrate on his third coming because the most important is the rapture. Third, saints should not be afraid and concentrate on his third coming. Well, who in the world's getting raptured up? His third coming comes with a lot of destruction, with shaking the earth and heavens. This is not made for the saints. Saints should keep watching and be ready for his second coming, rapture, because the time is at hand. Let's repent and pray that we are found worthy to be part of the rapture. Woe to those who we've left on earth because God's wrath is coming after the wildfire. I looked, and what I had written was good and amazing. All glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Amen. Folks, this is exactly, exactly what the Messiah was talking about. When he says here about... Uh, um, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and shall deceive many. Say, th this is the kind of propaganda that's being spread in, the, in a, an apostate America. This was wrote in 2011. Now, I, I ask you folks, why in the world would the Lord want to wrap out, rapture out the churches of today? I mean, think about it. I got an article here from Christian News. Apostate American Baptist minister volunteers as escort at North Carolina abortion facility. Seriously. 
Remember I read to you last week about the Episcopalian churches? How about the uh, uh, the Methodist churches with their Freemasonry, uh, Master uh, uh, um, 33rd degree Masons standing in the pulpits? Really? And you folks think that the you're gonna you're entitled to be raptured out? Look at it. Look at our politicians. How many of you people took the time to read? To read uh, uh, what I ask you to go on there and ch check out that pamphlet, billions for the the bankers, folks. You got to see behind the curtain what's going on. Uh, we talk about this coronavirus scare. Check out uh, Dr. Charles Lieber and the two Chinese diplomats that were arrested. Uh, what was it, January the twenty seventh? And their ties with Wuhan, China. Check out the video by uh, 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 Leon. Um, Len Horowitz, not Leon, Len Horowitz. He documents exactly what's going on here in America. Did you read about, what was it, $196 billion that the Federal Reserve just threw into our economy? Who do you think is going to uh, pay for that? Meanwhile, the churches are standing around there twiddling thumbs, sucking on bottled milk, just as the Messiah is stating very clearly in here. In this chapter twenty-four, did you read about the? Uh, did you read the article or the book, the little booklet I told you about Sheldon Emery, about the Federal Reserve, folks? Man, we're in a spiritual warfare here. People aren't waking up; they're not realizing what's going on here. This morning, as I was sitting there. Uh, it was about 4.30 this morning, sitting there uh, watching TV, and a religious commercial come on. Here's some TV evangelist, once you give you some miracle water. And then they got testimonies. This one lady said, oh, I got $56,000 in the mail. Come on, folks. Man, we, we got to be smarter than the devil. We got to be wiser than the serpent. This is what the Messiah is telling us. You 501c3 churches, really? Really? You you, you so-called Christian politicians out there, are, are, are you really defending the honor and the glory of Yeshua Messiah when you sit down and you vote on something? We got two gentlemen, uh, now it's getting to the point now, it's, it's hard for me to believe that, that Mr. Sanders is going to continue. Folks, we are in exactly what the Messiah said about an apostasy. It's coming. It's here. We need to wake up and realize what's going on. The Messiah says here, and, and, I, and I, I talked about it. I'm going to finish this up here today. He says here in verse 15, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Standing in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. I want to analyze. I want to break these words. I'm going to unravel these words. That's what the call this program is about. Unraveling the words. He says here, 
When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation. This word of here is the genitive of the cause which brings about on Yahweh's desolating judgments. Other words, abomination. Once again, what does abomination mean? The abomination of desolation is a Hebrew term that many Christians don't seem to understand. It is defined by the placing of an idol to worship in place of Yahweh, which is set up in the Holy of Holies in the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The final setting up of the idol will take place in the future when the Antichrist, the man of sin, will declare himself Yahweh in a rebuilt temple, placing himself up as an idol and demanding worship from the world. The, you know, we, we, we talked about this. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation. That's what it's all about. It's all about exactly what, and, and, I, and I spent the last three the studies on it. But it goes exactly, exactly what Paul says there, there in Second uh, Thessalonians. Exactly what Paul said. And then these churches want to try to make a rapture doctrine out of it? Come on, folks. we got to be wiser, wiser than the serpent. Paul says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, and by our gathering together unto him. That ye be not so soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as the day of the Messiah is at hand. Hey, this, I, I didn't want to mention that either. But hey, minister, you that had this vision in 2011, listen up. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, what day? The coming of the Messiah. Shall not come except they come a falling away first. An apostasy. And that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition, who opposed and exalted himself above all that's called Yahweh, or that is worship, so that he as Yahweh sitteth in the temple of Yahweh, showing himself that he is Yahweh. There, my dear brother and sister, is the abomination of desolation. That's the abomination of desolation. Nowhere does Paul say the saints are going to be raptured out before the abomination of desolation. We got to read what's being said. Don't listen to these phony balonies like I just read you. Oh, I had a vision in 2011 and I was taken up and I looked back and oh, come on, give me a break. Man. Spoken of by Daniel. In the Greek, dia. It means by the means of or through Daniel. This holy place. Prophet that's standing in the holy place. In, in the Greek here, the pinnacle. Now, the Greek has the article. The Greek word like pinnacle is, is, is the little of the wing. The wing side of the of the temple. It seems to have applied to any painted uh, pointed roof or gable. In this case, look into the position and the structure of the temple. We may think of the port of the point or the fortifica uh, fortifications of the entrance of Herod, overlooking the valley of Jehoshaphat, rising to a dizzy height of four hundred cubits above it, as Josephus writes there in Iniquities, uh, 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 book fifteen. 
You see, Yeshua Messiah's earlier visits to Jerusalem must have made the scene familiar to him. In past years, he may have looked down from, from that portico in the dark gorge beneath. Now a new thought is brought before him. Shall he test the evidence that he was the beloved son by throwing himself headlong down? Was there not a seeming warrant for such a trial, the crucial experiment of the sonship? Had not the psalmist declared the chosen one of Yahweh that his angel should bear him up? This seems a far truer view than at the point of temptation lay in the suggestion that he should work a sign or wonder by throwing himself in the presence of the people from the parapet that overlooked the temple of the worshipers and obtained power and authority. By the way, is Yeshua Messiah making reference to the same holy place where Satan took him in chapter 4? In that verse 5, we read pinnacle. Now, according to Dr. Bullinger, he comments a pinnacle, the wing, used a part of the temple or the holy place where the abomination of desolation is to stand. According Now, according to uh, a Theodosian, you ever read the Theodosian? He states that's where the abomination of desolation is going to stand. By the way, in this here where, where uh, the Messiah says, let him understand. You know, in the Greek there, it means observe attentively. Pay attention. I want to share with you, I've been, I've been talking about this. I want to share with you uh, uh, an article by uh, probably one of the true great statesmen of America. And that's Pastor Chuck Baldwin. He wrote an article. You ever get a chance, go on his website and read his articles. They are fantastic. I mean, Mr. Mr. Baldwin, he, he nails it. He, he really does nail it. I've been reading his articles for years. Awesome. Chuck Baldwin. In January the 30th, he titles his article, Trump's Deal with the Devil. Listen to what he's saying here. Donald Trump's so-called deal of the century unveiled this past Tuesday is actually a deal with the devil. This so-called Middle East peace plan would more accurately be called the Permanent Palestinian Enslavement Act, otherwise known as Save Benjamin Netanyahu's Deary Act. If you know, you got to understand what's happening with Benjamin Netanyahu. On the very day that Netanyahu was formally indicted on corruption charges by the Israel Knets, that's their government, the law system, Donald Trump rolls out his deal of the century, Middle East peace plan. As with Trump's assassination of General Solomon, this is nothing but a ploy to try and save Trump's partner in crime and fellow Zionist, Benjamin Netanyahu, and to further endear himself to be much beguiled Christian Zionist within Americans' evangelical voting bloc. The people who live under the yoke of Israel Oppression in Palestine, however, know exactly what this is all about. 
and they rightly reject it. United States President Donald Trump's Middle East plan, also known as the Deal of the Century, has been denounced by the Palestinians as a new Balfour Declaration. Trump revealed his plan on Tuesday with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu standing by his side at the White House. The, evidently, the Palestinians were left out of the negotiations. Trump led his statement by introducing the Israeli side of the plan, announcing that Jerusalem will remain the undivided capital of Israel, adding that this has already been done. He also noted that he hoped to implement the plan immediately. Netanyahu, speaking after Trump, thanked the U.S. president for an historical day, said the plan would see Israeli law implemented in the occupied West Bank Jordan Valley as means to ensuring the security of Israel. Now, Falka Abu Daeb, a Palestinian activist in the Silwan neighborhood in East Jerusalem, told Al Jazeera, it's obvious that Trump is repeating history by establishing a new Balfour Declaration. He, Trump, is giving away what he does not own to people who have no right to, right to it. Following Britain's pledge to establish a national home for the Jewish people, the Balfour Declaration was issued on November the 2nd, 1917. It turned the Zionist aim of establishing a Jewish state in Palestine into a reality. This deal only secures Israeli interests while violating international law and some of the main pillars of the Palestinian state, Jerusalem and the Jordan Valley. After decades of sacrificing our lives for this cause, we want our freedom and Palestinian state along the 1967 border, not some economic gains. We completely reject this plan and will continue to fight it, he added. Back to what uh, Chuck Baldwin, he states, the Palestinians are absolutely right. This is merely another Balfour Declaration which was nothing more than a conspiracy orchestrated by the 19th-20th century Zionists to steal land belonging to the indigenous Arab people in a demonic attempt to overturn God's ju divine judgment on the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple in 70 AD. A judgment that has been prophesied by Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his apostles. In actuality, Zionism is nothing more than a 2,000-year-old blood feud with God with the, for destroying their holy city and their holy temple. Trump's two-state solution for the Palestinians is a, an, analogical to the way Nazi Germany forced Jews into the Warsaw ghettos. Be good little slaves and accept our total uh, domination over you. Eat your bread and water and live in the squalid conditions and maybe we won't kill you. That is Trump's two-state solution, his deal of the century. Without a doubt, Gaza is the Oscars of our time. Palestinians shouted back, Jerusalem is not for sale. Trump released a conceptual map of his two-state solution on Twitter after his speech, showing a much-reduced West Bank honeycombed with Israeli settlements. 
while these ethnically segregated outposts are illegal under international law, the peace plan recognizes them as permanent, though imposes a four-year freeze on construction on further settlements. A tunnel connects the West Bank and Gaza. Two chunks of desert land in Israel's southwest are added to Palestine, connected by a tiny strip of the land of Gaza. The deal situates their, uh, situates the proposed capital of Palestinian state in the East Jerusalem, outside the existing security barrier that divides Arab neighborhoods from the rest of Jerusalem, but does not include the old city, currently home to many of the city's Palestinian residents. While Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was standing beside Trump as he detailed the proposed plan, no Palestinian representative was present at the speech. The Abbas Palestinian Authority preemptively scorned the deal, having cut off communications with Washington since the U.S. moved its embassy to Jerusalem, an outcome Trump appears to have expected, telling reporters the day before unveiling the deal that the Palestinians probably won't want to initially. However, he hinted economic pressure would eventually bring them around. Here we go. Like most unprincipled money-hungry Americans, including prosperity gospel fakers like Paula White, Kenneth Copeland, Donald Trump suffers from a delusion, in other words, moral sickness, that everyone is like him, will sell their soul for a dollar. Trump and his ilk have absolutely no idea how to regulate or relate to people who possess real convictions and principles and cannot be bought or bullied. You know, people like our early church fathers and American founding fathers. Tragically, evangelical Christians are following the Pied Pipers of Zionism into the abyss. See, folks, this all ties into what the Messiah is talking. All what what uh, uh, what uh, Chuck Baldwin's saying here is leading up to the abomination of desolations. Back to what Chuck Baldwin says. I'll say it straight out. Anyone who believes that the modern state of Israel fulfills Bible prophecy or that the Zionists in Israel, God's chosen people, or that God's promises in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 to bless those who bless Abram applies to modern Israel is following Satan's lie. The modern state of Israel is a complete counterfeit. The Ashkenazi Jews inhabiting Palestine are only chosen if they, like every other person on the planet, Jew or Gentile, have been chosen in Christ. Ephesians 1.4 And the Rothschild Zionists, who are the planners, promoters, financial pockets of the globalist New World Order, complete with its efforts to strip free men of their right to keep and bear arms, implement universal abortion on demand, fill our culture with pornography and sexual deviancy and destroy Americans' Christian heritage, are nothing more than the spiritual descendants of the Pharisees, the chief priests, and the scribes who hated 
and crucified the Son of God for their own personal pleasure and profit. You see, folks, we need more individuals like Chuck Baldwin standing up for what's right. He continues here, Any Christian or patriot who does not understand that the epic center of the New World Order has coincided in Tel Aviv and in London and Washington, D.C. of this core, of course, doesn't have a clue about the New World Order or the deep state. The worst tyrants and oppressors in the Middle East are in Tel Aviv and Beersheba. The criminality, killings, torture, pillage, plunder committed by the Israeli dwarfs, the violence and the bloodshed committed by Muslim peoples, Shiites or the Sunnis. Even the Murnias Wahhabi sect of Muslims can't compare to the volume of Israeli aristocrats. Since becoming a state in 1948, the Israel military has killed over 5 million Palestinians. Why is this not labeled a holocaust? And since Israel became a state, over 20 million people have been killed from U.S.-led wars, military coups, and intelligent ops, mostly on behalf of Israel. Why is that not labeled a holocaust? If American evangelicals want to support God's people in Palestine, they will support the Palestinian Christians, who along with Arab Christians throughout the region, yes, Many of the Palestinians being victimized by Israel's apartheid state are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Yet America's evangelical Christians are cheering Trump's deal with the devil of enabling Netanyahu and his broad of bloodthirsty butchers to expand Israel's continuing criminal conduct of stealing people's land, bulldozing people's homes, imprisoning people's families, shooting children in the head for sport, walk, walling in, starving, denying water and electricity to entire communities, and wrecking havoc and violence upon the entire Middle East. Why? Because evangelicals have fallen victim to the damnable notes promoting Israel-based prophetic Futurism in the Zionist-created Schofield Reference Bible. After the State of Israel was created in 1948, Schofield's notes were seen as divinely inspired. Israel land grab of the Jordanair Western Bank, the Syrian Golan Heights, and the Egyptian Sinai in 1967 sealed the deal for the evangelicals. Christians didn't even notice that Israel tried to sink the USS Liberty on June the 8th, 1967. See, nobody wants to talk about the USS Liberty. Nobody. This is exactly what's leading up to the abomination of desolations. With unmarked French Mirage jets to make it appear the ship was attacked by Egyptian in an attempt to bring the United States into the war. Christians didn't even notice that 34 American sailors and Marines were killed in that attack. 174 were wounded. And to this day, they talk.
totally ignore the brave survivors of that attack who risk everything to try and tell the American people what really happened on that terrible day. Combined with the creation of the Israeli state in 1948, the Six-Day War in 1967 was interpreted by prophecy preachers nationwide as a sign from heaven. Israel's victory was called a miracle. Of course, the real miracle during the Israeli act of aggression landing confiscation in 1967 was the divine intervention that kept the USS Liberty afloat on June 8th. But that didn't fit in with the Schofield prophecy preacher's theology. So the miracle was never mentioned. See, nobody ever... Let me ask you, I'm going to take a pause here for a second. Have you ever researched the USS Liberty and really the testimony that was sent as these Israeli jets bombed the USS Liberty trying to pretend it was the Egyptian Air Force? Once again, I'm going to ask you, why in the world would Yeshua Messiah, Yahweh, want to rapture out these Christian churches that continue to find the Zionist Rothschild-led movement? You folks are clueless, have no idea what's going on behind the curtains. You're more worried about baseball, basketball, hockey, whatever your interest may be. You sit there and you whine that your 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 hard-earned money has to be turned over to the Federal Reserve to pay for a debt that we you and I didn't create. Back to Chuck to, uh, uh, Chuck Baldwin. Soon prophetic dispensationism, as it came to be called, saturated America's Christian colleges, seminaries, Christian bookstores. The church growth movement of the 70s, 80s, and the 90s quickly enveloped Americans' evangelicals. Of course, most of the church growth movement had a heavy emphasis on Israel, pro uh, prophecy, and the imminent return of Christ. In the minds of the evangelical futurists today, Donald Trump is the new King Cyrus for a greater Israel. Matter of fact, Donald Trump himself came out, check it out, and said that he is the King of Israel. Folks, I don't know how you feel about that statement, but that's a blasphemy. There's no reasoning with these prophet prophecy zealots. There's no use quoting the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. There's no such thing as nat natural law, international law, the law of nations with them. Americans' founding fathers and founding documents are completely irrelevant, as are honesty, integrity, morality, and humility. None of it matters. Schofield's prophecies have been fulfilled in Donald Trump. Old Testament Israel has been reborn. A third Jewish temple must be rebuilt. The Mosaic feast, festivals, new moons, rites, ordinance, commandments, sacrifice, and Sabbath must be reinstituted. Donald Trump is the chosen one. He is God's anointed. Donald Trump, Benjamin Netanyahu, Nikki Haley are the new Holy Trinity. 
Robert Jeffries, Jerry Falwell, John Hagee, Kenneth Copin, Paula White, Franklin Graham, along with Trump's moderate spiritual advisors, or the New Kingdom prophets who sit at the king's tables. Assassinating foreign heads of state, enabling the Federal Reserve bankers to crush foreign currencies and economics that reject their financial monopoly, stealing oil fields from uh, the powerless countries, pillaging, plundering Americans' economic future in order to finance the never-ending Zionist war on terror, bullying every nation on earth that hesitates to accept the American-slash-Israeli global hegemony, risking global nuclear war in the minds of the evangelical rapturous, it's all necessary to fill Schofield's prophecies. Yep. Donald Trump's deal of the century is nothing more than an old-fashioned deal with the devil. Then again, many evangelical Christians and former presidents have made that same deal over the past 70-plus years. He goes on here, he ends up, P.S. This is the message you won't hear in the vast majority of America's evangelical churches. This message will explain the Zion's blood feud against God and why most Christians have completely misinterpreted the truth of God's word by embracing Israel-based prophetic futurism. You will probably never hear another message like it. Find it here. And once again, that was Pastor Chuck Baldwin, a true American patriot. This is the, this is exactly what the Messiah was talking about. Exactly, folks. You got to wake up, man. You got to realize what's happening. This tribulation period is going to hit hit you. You have no idea what's going to happen. All the pieces are being moved. It's like L.A. Morzuli's cosmic chess match. You know, there's a chess game on between, between Yahweh and Satan, his demonic powers, his demons. We're nothing but a pawn in this game. Say it. It's sad that these churches now. Now you got your 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 local churches. They they don't discuss this kind of stuff no more. Oh no, because see we're in that Jesus loves you mode. Don't worry about the coronavirus deal, brother and sister. Jesus loves you. As long as you give your ten percent time, you realize that if you don't give your ten percent, you're bound for hell. But Jesus loves you. As long as you give your ten percent tithe, Jesus loves you. Really. Where's that in the scriptures at? You and I. We work hard for our money. And to have this Illuminati Rothschild banking system steal our money to pay some ridiculous $196 billion the Federal Reserve put into this economy. Let me ask you something. When you hear the federal government, Donald Trump talk about, oh, well, the federal government will pay for all the, where do you think the money's coming from? You think they got that kind of money sitting in, in a checking account? No! 
They got to go to the bankers. They got to go to the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers. They got to borrow that money. Well, who do you think's paying the interest on that? You and I are. Man. You know, that, an, 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 another problem I, I got with this abomination of desolation. You got your Prietists out there. And uh, they'll tell you that 70 A.D., that's when the abomination of desolation took place. I want to share, just go in a little bit before I go into verse 16. Why, we have to ask, I, I have, let me, I had to ask myself, why 70 A.D. wasn't the abomination of desolation? So, in, in my personal, and, and, I, and I researched all the preachers. Got their, their, went on their websites, got their articles, researched McCray, Stevens, and Ed Stevens, and all those guys. I'm, I'm going to, you know, to the, uh, the older generation. Other people have set, uh, speculated that Titus, the Roman commander whose fo uh, forces besieged Jerusalem in 7 AD, was the prince who is to come. Logically, this is impossible for three reasons. First, the passage tells us that the prince who is to come confirms a covenant after the temple is destroyed. In the middle of one week period of that covenant, after a half a week, which is 1,260 days or about three years and uh, five and a half months from the time he confirms the covenant, he puts an end to sacrifice and offerings. Now, we get this from Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. You see, folks, it would have been impossible for Titus to have made a covenant after the temple was destroyed. And then in the middle of the week after that covenant, to have put an end to the sacrifice and offering. This is because after the temple was destroyed, there was no sacrifice and offering to abolish since there was no temple. The second reason Titus could not have been uh, the prince of who has come is that, is that Yeshua Messiah prophesied that the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel will happen after the gospel has been preached to all the nations at the time of the end. There in Matthew chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. And this gospel... Of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel. So we see that didn't happen. The third reason that Titus could not have been the prince who is to come is that the end of the 70th week of Daniel, all the following conditions must be met which was not the case after the time of Titus. We go there in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks 
are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Based on the logical analysis of the chronological of Daniel's prophecy, the prince who is to come has not yet come. It's important to note this because Daniel chapter 9, using a minimum number of words, tells us that a future temple will be standing in Jerusalem at the time of this prince. And that temple is being worked on right now through the Kabbalist diplomacy of Donald Trump and his daughter and his son-in-law Kushner who is a Kabbalist Jewish. These people do not follow the Torah. Uh, very few of them even follow the Talmud. I, I, I'm going to repeat this once again. I, I made this similar statement in various studies. Why in the world would a born-again Christian want to help an unbelieving Jew has no faith in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Yeshua Messiah. This unbelieving Jew, this individual, steadily reads the Talmud, which states that the Virgin Mary was a whore, and they compare Yeshua Messiah to Balaam. They're in Numbers chapter 22. Why in the world would you want to donate your dollars to these individuals? To me, if you're going to donate your hard-earned dollars to these types of individuals, to these unbelieving Jews that have no faith in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who claims their mother is a whore, he was he, he was a type of Balaam. You might as give your give your money to the abortion clinics or on any other ungodly institution, because that's exactly what you're doing. Give your if you want to help a Christian out, look for those Christian families that love and believe in the gospel of Yeshua Messiah. That's what you should look for. Now, if you take notice here in Matthew 24, verse 15 does not end with a period. So he continues. He says here in verse 16, Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Other words, then. That's to say, when they shall, when they shall see the abomination of desolation taking place. Them which be in Judea, not only in Jerusalem, but in its vicinity, as most exposed to danger from the invading army. Judea, the area in which Jerusalem sits. We, we can think, if you go back to uh, there in the Old Testament, when, when Yahweh broke uh, uh, Israel up into the 12 tribes, this land of Judah, 
Why? By the way, why, why does he say this? Well, them which be in Judea. Why? Well, think about it. Number one, that, that, that's, that's where the stones will fall. Remember there in the book of Revelation, those hailstones, they're going to fall there. Not, not only that, Satan's going to be there. We, we know that. We, we know that from what I read to you earlier. They're in 2 Thessalonians. And, and let's not forget also, let's not forget also that uh, they're in the book of Revelation. Let me go into chapter 11 here. I won't pick it up in verse 3. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy two hundred and three score days, cloth and a sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before Yahweh of the earth. Check it out there in Zechariah. If any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. If any man will hurt them, he must in the matter be killed. These have the power to shut heaven. That reign not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all the plagues as often as they will. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottom of the pit make war against them, and shall overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in that street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So he's telling you, in Jerusalem. And they are the people and the kindreds and the tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in the graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. They stood up. They spoke against the Rothschild banking system. They spoke against these Zionist Christians. They spoke against uh, uh, the Talmud believers. And after three days and a half of the spirit of life from God, Yahweh entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them, which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. They were astonished. They couldn't figure this out. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. We, we worship Lucifer. Keep in mind what Paul says there in Thessalonians, that, that he's gonna, Satan's going to set himself in the temple, thinking that he's Yahweh. And he had these two, these two witnesses dead. Whoa, 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 wait a minute here. These two witnesses are resurrected. And the same hour, there was a great earthquake. And the tenth part of the city of it fell, and the earthquake was slain of men. Seven thousand. There's another reason why you want to flee. Flee to the mountains. Flee out of there. The great earthquake. And gave glory to Yahweh of heaven. This is what he's talking about. You see, why does he say, then let them which be in Judea flee? You know why? Because if you're hanging around after the two witnesses are resurrected, he's going to say you're just as guilty as those others. And, and because he's telling you, this is what he's telling you. Then let them which be in Judea flee. Get out, he's telling you. Get out. Get out of town. 
Don't hang around. Flee into. Uh, 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 in the Greek there, the purpose is an epi. Over. Over the mountains. The Christians seem to have taken this advice when the city was attacked by uh, uh, Cassius Gallius about AD 66. Some three or more years before the siege under Vespasian. Gallius had appeared before the walls. Apparently had every hope of taking the city. When for some reason, not certainly known, neither owing to supposed defeat or ignorance of his own success or the advice of his general, he suddenly withdrew his forces. That's, a, that's a, uh, according to Josephus. The Christians bearing Yeshua Messiah's warning in mind, having, as we may surmise, seen the predicted sign, took the opportunity of flight from the, dome, the, the doomed city, and made their escape to Pella, a town of Decapitus, southeast of Bashin, and the ruins of which are now known by the name of Falhi, as Zubius uh, probably refers to this migration. They're in his writings, uh, narrating that owing to a certain revelation given to holy men among them, the whole body of the church before the war removed across Jordan to Pella, and dwelt there in safety during those uh, troublous times. So this is what we're talking about. I'm talking about the mountains, the mountains of Palestine, abounding caves, a safe retreat for those who are pursued. In all ages, these caves have been the caves have been the favorite places of the robbers, and they were also resorted there by dangers. He's telling you, get out of Dodge, folks. Get out of Jerusalem. Say, get out. He goes on here to verse 17. Let him, keep notice, we're, we're still in the same sentence. There's no period here. These are colons. Let him which is on the housetop. What's the housetop? What's the purpose of the housetop? It, it, it's a place where the watchman stands. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. You see, that, that houses in the streets of Jerusalem were built in a continuous line with flat roofs so that a man might pass from house to house without descending into the street until he came to some point near the wall or gate of the city so he could make his escape. At a moment of danger, in this case, that arising from the factions within the city rather than the invaders without, any delay might prove fatal. Men were to escape as, as though their life were given them for a prey, as in Jeremiah chapter 45, verse 5, without thinking of their goods or wealth. Get out of Dodge, folks. You don't need it. So, we may ask, well, what are we watching for? Seriously, folks, the enemy. So therefore, when you see the enemy coming, flee from Judea. In other words, flee for refuge. Never forget who your refuge is. Yeshua Messiah. You know, uh, let me, uh, bu -bu -bu -bu. I just went brain dead. Stay with me, stay with me, stay with me. Uh, Genesis, Genesis, Genesis. Uh, stay with me here. Uh, Genesis. Uh, da, 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 da. 
I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Um, uh, bu -bu -bu. Genesis chapter 19. And I'm going to pick it up verse 50. You all know what happened there in, in Sodom and Gomorrah. The two angels went to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? But listen here. I want to pick it up. Genesis chapter 19, verse 15. And when the morning arose, then the angels hasted Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are there, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. This is why the Messiah is telling us there in Matthew to get out of Jerusalem. And while he lingered, I figure that out. The men laid hold upon his hand, and upon the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters. Yahweh being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. Same thing with the Messiah is telling you, is what happened to Lot. And it came to pass, when they had brought them forth abroad, that he said, Escape for thy life, look not behind thee, Neither stay thou in the plain, escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. See that? And, and Lot said unto them, Oh, not so, my Lord, my Yahweh. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute here. You see, you see the example of the Messiah? He, as he talks here in Matthew, he, he's giving you little insight. He wants you to focus on, where's there an example of that? Oh, how about Lot? And Lot says, Oh, not so, my Lord. Really? Behold now, thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me, in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me, and I die. You're contradicting what the Lord said? Folks, I want you to take what's being said in Genesis to exactly what, when he says, those of us living in Judah, Jerusalem, get out of the city. Behold, now this city is near to flee unto, and this is the little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is it not the little one? And he said unto me, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also. And then they're talking about it and so forth. They want to go to Zorn. Then I'm going to go to verse 34. Then Yahweh reigned upon Solomon and upon Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants. And it came, came to pass when Eliam destroyed the cities of the plain that Eliam remembered Abraham and sent Lot and so forth. This is what he's trying to tell you. Get out of town. Don't wait. Don't look back. Get out. Flee from the devil. Flee from this from Satan himself. Now, once again, never forget who your refuge is. It's Yeshua Messiah. When those who have fallen under the deception of the false prophet doing the abomination of desolation, which we just covered, then flee to those outstretched arms of Yeshua Messiah. For he is our only refuge. I think on the words of Yeshua Messiah as he spoke to the religious community there in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
These words here in verse 17 are the words of warning to those who have followed the Antichrist instead of waiting for the true Messiah. He continues here, take not anything. The, all, all the manuscripts, the best manuscripts, it all says the things. And take the things out of his house. Folks, this is a solemn warning to you and I. This is what he's talking about. This thing is, is moving faster than a speeding bullet. We have to wake up. We have to realize. As I close out this morning, I want to share with you what Paul writes there in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 17 Part of 17 and part of 20. Listen to what he says. These are for those that are in the land of Judah. And if. This is a condition now. And if the Messiah is not risen. Then our preaching is vain. It's empty. It's useless. And your faith is also vain. Empty. Useless. And if the Messiah is not risen, your faith is futile, and you, and you are still in your sins. But now, the Messiah is risen from the dead. The early church persistently proclaimed the resurrection of Lord Yeshua Messiah. This was not an option for them. Neither is it an option for us. The grace of Yahweh that is available to the gospel for the, both the justification and the sanctification requires a risen Lord. The resurrection is essential to the gospel, which is the new covenant of grace. The Spirit of Yahweh emphasizes this strongly as he inspired Paul to write, If the Messiah is not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. If Yeshua Messiah had not been risen from the dead, our preaching would be empty. If the Messiah were still in a tomb, his salvation mission ended in failure, not in victory. Yeshua Messiah is the object of our faith. If he is not alive, our trusting in him would be fruitless. Yeshua Messiah frequently taught of his death and resurrection. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed and raised the third day. Luke chapter 9, 22. Furthermore, Paul wrote, And if the Messiah is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. The gospel of forgiveness of sins includes the resurrection. I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, that the Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. You see, folks, faith is, is, is only effective as its object. If our Lord is not resurrected, it is useless to place our confidence in him. If we are trusting in a dead Savior, to forgive us and set us free, we are still guilty and bound. However, glory be to Yahweh, 
our Lord is not an ancient tomb. But now the Messiah is risen from the dead. You see, folks, he rose victorious over sin and death, bringing everlasting righteousness to all who believe. Faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us it should be imputed to us. That's to say credit to our account. Who believe in him? Who raised up Yeshua, our Lord, from the dead? Who was delivered up because of our offense? It was raised because of our justification. Thus all of the grace of blessings of the resurrection are ours by faith. As Paul writes in 4, Romans 4.16, Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. Dear Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the resurrection victory of Yeshua Messiah, our Lord. We praise you, Yeshua, as our risen, living Savior. What a mighty salvation you have secured through your victory over sin and death. Glory be to your name for providing it all by grace through faith. We ask now in your precious name, teach us to trust in you more and more in your holy name. Father, we thank you so much of that name, that power that lies behind that name, that through the grace we can find our, our justification of our faith, our sanctification of our souls, through the resurrected Messiah. Lord, if there's somebody out there this morning that does not realize that, speak to their hearts, Father. Allow the Holy Spirit to show them and guide them and direct them and bring them out of that darkness into that everlasting light, for He is our light. Father, we thank You so much for all things. Father, we ask that You bless those as those bless You, Father. Father, we pray for Christians throughout not only the uh, this county, not only this nation, but all over the world, that they come to the reality that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is still alive today. And that we have to follow the exact words that was proclaimed to us. We can't whitewash anything, Lord. We have to stay focused. We have to stay tuned in what you have to say, Father. I pray, Lord. I pray that a revival can come to America. I pray that we can see and, and f search out the justification, the sanctification of your grace in all mankind. Father, I thank you. I thank you for all things. In that name of Yeshua Messiah. Amen. Amen.